Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What's up, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can help this show to grow while also getting access to our exclusive Pride content, which includes shows like Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Special Interviews, Lions of Liberty Roundtables, and much, much more. So check that out. Help us grow at lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. We are human beings, and we've all had uh, five to ten years shaved off our life because of these amendments. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. What up, what up, what up, my friends? And uh, if I sound a little tired or a little hoarse, it's because I am recovering from Liberty Behind the Lines, this amazing event that we just had uh, the other night here, Saturday night in Los Angeles. We had uh, Jason Stapleton out here, who obviously many of you know just moved out to L.A. recently. Also had Dave Smith, a part of the problem in town. And we had a great meetup organized by our friends at Liberty on the Rocks. Want to give a shout out to my man Pablo Serrato for helping out with that. We had a great time. I met a ton of fans of the show. Uh, it still blows my mind that there are people who want to take pictures with me. That, that's a weird thing to me, but uh, it was a blast just just meeting you guys and hanging out with Dave and Jason. Uh, we did a little bit of a live podcast. Uh, we're still going to try to air that audio or some of that audio, I think, later in the week. So stay tuned to your feed for that. We'll try to get some of that stuff out there. We really had a really great uh, little live podcast question and answer session that we did there. And uh, yeah, that's about all. All I got as far as updates because of said vo- horse, horse voice and tiredness. We're going to get right in to my interview with a wonderful woman by the name of Mary Ruart. But first, I want to let you know that this is the 341st episode of this program. Why is that important, you might ask? Because you can find today's show notes, which you're definitely going to need because there's a very special offer that Mary is going to put out towards the end of the interview that you're definitely going to want to check out uh, to get her book and a bunch of free stuff. So be sure to head over to the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 341. Of course, I want to remind you guys, it is not just me here on the Lions of Liberty podcast ranting and raving and having interviews every single Monday. It is also my good friend Brian McWilliams, who is, of course, out with us at Liberty Behind the Lines this past Saturday, uh, saying all sorts of wacky stuff, which maybe you'll hear on the audio later in the week. But uh, he is currently traveling in Japan, but he will still have a brand new edition of Electric Liberty Land this coming Wednesday, as he does every single Wednesday for your weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty. And of course, my man, John Odermatt, Wraps things up every single Friday with his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system. So be sure to hit that subscribe button. This is just stuff you don't want to miss, folks. Let's get into the show. Today's guest is making her second appearance on this program. She is a scientist, a speaker, and the author of several books, including Healing Our World in an Age of Aggression, and her new book, which is coming out very, very soon, which is titled Death by Regulation. Very, very scary. I'm so pleased to welcome Miss Mary Ruart. Mary, are you ready to roar? I am, and I've been roaring through my writing, and Death by Regulation is going to be another one, I think. (laughs) 
You sure have. You are certainly not the kind to uh, keep quiet about your beliefs. You're always out there, whether it's speaking or being involved in politics or writing books like this. You're, you're pretty damn, uh, pretty damn Rory. I don't know if that's a that's a verb or not, but it is now. Okay. <laughs> And you now, Mary, we'll talk about your book, Death by Regulation, more in just a bit. But when you were first on this program a, a couple of years ago, you discussed how you started off by, by coming from the left and your desire to, to help the poor. You were sort of a, of a bleeding heart, you might say. And people can go back and listen to that full interview. It's episode 88. I'll link to it in today's show notes to hear you go into more detail about that. But I was hoping we could delve into that specific point a little bit more. You know, I, I consider myself somewhat of a bleeding heart as well. It's the, the injustices that I see in the world that inspire me to speak out more and to start this podcast. So why do you feel that the ideas of liberty and libertarianism should be the home of those who consider themselves bleeding hearts? There's actually two reasons. I'll go to the first one first. Um, You know, when we talk about loving our neighbor, which is what, you know, liberals really want to do, I think, and help the poor and save the environment and everything. When we talk about loving our neighbor, We actually violate that principle if we are willing to initiate force, fraud, or theft against others. And, you know, for example, if if I come to you and ask you to contribute to my favorite charity and you say no, as a private individual, I'll probably say, well, you know, Mark, that's okay. I'll catch you next time. And we're, you know, we're still friends and everything. But when we if I came if I came to you with a gun and put it to your head and say you will uh, contribute to my favorite charity, uh, you know we wouldn't be friends anymore. That's not a very loving thing to do, and yet that's what we do when we impose taxes on our fellow Americans in order to contribute to our favorite charity. So when I realized that, I realized that it wasn't a very loving thing to do to force other people to contribute to my favorite charities. So that was one thing. The other thing, however, and this took me many more years to realize, I I thought that even though I disagreed with the concept of taxation for welfare or other charities, I thought, well, at least people are being helped by welfare. And then when I started renting to people who were on welfare, I found out that that wasn't the case either. I found out that when we have a system like government that's giving out what we call charity, it has to follow the same rules for everyone and people can work the system. And they did. And in a very way that was destructive to them. For example, when I had young women come to me who were pregnant in high school, they told me, hey, you know, when I have this baby, I'm going to get a welfare check and I'm going to be able to afford this apartment that you're renting. So, you know, sign me up. And they would think that that was a good deal because, you know, they're young, they're in high school, they don't realize how much it really costs to live. So they have their baby, they find out they're not getting enough money in their welfare check. So they have a second baby because they'll get more money. And then they realize, oops, that's not working. They have the third. And in Michigan, where I was working at the time, after the third child, you didn't get any more welfare. So just about the time they were ready to turn 21 and be able to vote, uh, what they found out was, hey, I I can't be supported on this welfare check. I'm never even going to have a car. And so what ends up happening is that these young women try to go to work when they're 21 without a high school diploma with three children that need child care. And the entry level position just doesn't provide enough. So they're stuck forever in the welfare trap and, and at a time when they realize they don't want to be there. 
So the programs we have through government tend to be very destructive. What they do is they spend two thirds of their resources paying the middle class social workers. So the poor don't get very much. Sure. It's sort of a, a two-pronged fork there. There's the method itself, which we find immoral, the the act of using force against our fellow man in ways that we would never do on the individual level. But suddenly when we let government do it, many people seem to feel fine about it, or maybe they just don't make that connection uh, to the gun, to the violence. Uh, and then on the other side, when we actually look at the results and how these programs operate, they are actually causing destruction and causing, you know, causing the, the solutions we're looking for to, they actually do the opposite. So it really, it really goes both ways with all that. And that really does tie into uh, many of the things that you discuss in your new book, Death by Regulation. So why don't we start off with what inspired you to write this book right now at this time? Obviously, I know you've been involved in uh, the medical industry for, for most of your career here. So uh, why, why did you decide that this is the book that needed to come out right now? Well, you know, there's been enough research in recent years to actually calculate at least a minimum number of people who have died from the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act. And that's because the pharmaceutical industry, of course, is getting a lot of press. Uh, there's been a lot of studies about it. And so at least for pharmaceuticals, you can calculate the impact of these amendments. And it's horrific. About 50% of the people who have died since 1962 have lost 10 years of their life. Or another way of thinking of it is that all of us have lost about five years of our life. And that's just for its impact on the pharmaceutical industry. It also, these amendments also were very deadly in that they shifted our medical paradigm from prevention, which was relatively inexpensive, to treatment, which is very expensive. And in doing so, it's it's really suppressed a lot of life-saving information that we have about supplements and nutrition and, and even older drugs. So it's difficult to calculate the impact of that and get an actual number because the studies haven't been done for the shift from prevention to treatment. However, I think from everything I know and see in the literature, that impact is probably bigger than what happened on the drug industry. And, and I just told you it's pretty bad about all of us have lost about five years of our life to that. So you can imagine if we add in the shift from prevention to treatment, how deadly these regulations are. I That's a scary idea. That yeah. Have I already lost five years of my life from this? <laughs> well, exactly. You know, because we don't have, like I said, life-saving information is suppressed. Um, if you think about, just think about the drug industry. I know um, I, I believe in prevention. I want to put that right out front there, but, you know, drugs can be helpful. And now life-saving drugs, instead of taking four years to get from the lab bench to the marketplace, it takes about 14 years. So that's huge. And when I was working on drugs for AIDS, uh, the AIDS uh, community hired black market chemists to make the very drugs we were working on. And they distributed them throughout the AIDS community. So by the time FDA finally gave us permission to test in people, every AIDS uh, sufferer in the country had already had our drug, you know, if they wanted it, and they were resistant. So we had to wait for people to be, you know, diagnosed with, with the disease to do our testing. So you can get a feel. In fact, the Dallas Buyers Club movie, uh, for those you know of your listeners who, who have seen that, saw what right happened there. to people who tried to use nutrition and supplements and some of these new drugs, either getting them from overseas or 
uh, copying what we were doing in the drug industry. And, and they were prosecuted and persecuted by the FDA, and especially if they weren't tied to media. In California, a lot of the buyers club were able to operate because the FDA was afraid to come after them, I think. It would have been such bad publicity. But for example, in Texas, where the Dallas Buyers Club movie uh, was describing what happened to this individual who you know, didn't have that media protection, it was pretty brutal. Right. And that kind of just shows the power of even just forming together in groups and, and being vocal, being politically vocal and forming a uh, sort of sympathy with the public. Because like you said, you did go into this in the book a bit, but you said they, they sort of laid off the, the activists in California. Uh, many of them were gay activists that had a lot of sort of political clout at the time. And it would have just been bad PR maybe for the FDA to be going after those people. Whereas as, you know, uh, the, the Dallas Buyers Club, they're going after kind of a, a more obscure character who might not have that sort of same protection in his culture and that sort of thing. And uh, was maybe a, a much easier target. Yes, yes, they do tend to go after easier targets. And I have to say, the AIDS community did a very good job of, you know, notifying people who wanted these drugs, what the potential side effects were and looking at them. And that information was largely lost because, you know, obviously it was illegal. So it was very difficult to to get that information, it would have been so helpful. Well, I want to get into the, the history of these drug regulations a little bit, which you, you delve into in the book as well. And I, I think you can trace a lot of the, the current rules and regulations to these 1962 amendments to the uh, FD, the Food and Drug uh, Safety Act, I believe it is. And um, it, this ties into the incident with uh, thalidomide and, and thalidomide babies. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly is thalidomide and the problems that children were having and, and how that led to this response? Yes. Well, what happened is in Europe, there was a new sleeping drug approved, which was safer than barbiturates, at least for adults. And so, you know, barbiturate overdose was a big problem. So thalidomide was put out as a safer agent. And it was as a sleeping drug. And then women found that their morning sickness was abated when they took the drug. So the company started uh, promoting it for morning sickness because back in the early 60s, it wasn't as widely appreciated as it is today that the fetus is so much more sensitive than the mother to drugs. So some of these babies were born without limbs. Some died shortly after they were born or died in utero. And so it was a very horrific thing. It happened mostly in Europe. I think there were 10 to 15,000 babies involved. And this drug was not approved in the United States. Um, it had some other side effects that concerned the FDA, so they hadn't approved it. But when the thalidomide tragedy happened, Life magazine had a big spread on it, and people were clamoring uh, for the Congress to do something to make them safe. Well, unfortunately, most of the safety problems that we have with drugs are due to the fact that we simply don't know enough science to predict every side effect. And that's what happened with thalidomide. But these amendments that were passed were actually things floating around in Congress for several years, and they were based on the idea that, hey, no one's prescribing generic drugs because they don't work as well as the brand name drugs. So maybe what we need to do is have the generic drugs go through effectiveness testing so they, we can show that they're as safe and as good as brand name drugs, which back then they were not. So these amendments that were passed were never designed to improve safety. But what happened is they gave the FDA so much power and the power was open-ended. So every year, the FDA demands more and more. So the costs of developing a new drug have gone up exponentially. 
Um, in my book, I, I suggest that it looks like maybe it's as much as a 40-fold increase in pricing. And wow. yeah, and that we pay that at the pharmacy. You know, we pay uh, our what we pay at the pharmacy is directly related to what the regulatory costs are for drug companies. It's it's not greed, it's the regulatory costs. And even the advertising and manufacturing costs that manu- that uh, drug companies have are related to the amendments because the amendments also changed how manufacturing is done and how advertising is done. So, and, and because all these costs make drug development more risky, investors demand a bigger profit as well. So a lot of the problems we have with big pharma today can be traced back to the amendments. Now, if, if the drugs were safer, we might say, okay, that's a good thing, but they aren't safer. The withdrawal rate, in other words, the, the, the number of drugs that come off the market after they've been marketed because the safety problems weren't found out until after FDA approval. When we look at those numbers, what we see is pre-amendment drugs came off the market at a slightly lower rate than post-amendment drugs. So that's just the opposite of what the amendments had promised us. <laughs> and, and in addition, the effectiveness isn't different or much different. Um, the effectiveness of drugs maybe was improved, maybe 10%, depending on which study you looked at. Most of them say it hasn't been improved improved at all. So, you know, we're paying all this money. We're losing years of our lives. And the amendments aren't doing what they promised to do. And yeah, I mean, many libertarians are familiar with the, uh, the Hayekian concept of the seen and the unseen. So, I mean, you say like, you know, effectiveness may have increased 10%, but we don't really even know how much effectiveness could be, you know, would, would, how much that would proceed if the free market was truly unleashed. And if, you know, they weren't really bound by a lot of these FDA regulations, I mean, it could, it could be so much more than that, or, you know, they could be effective in, in a much better way that we can't even fathom due to all these decades of FDA control. That's right. And again, because so many studies are done, we know, for example, that about 15 million Americans have died waiting for drugs because, you know, the development time went from four to 14 years. And then our innovation, which is really the big issue uh, in, in pharmaceuticals, the innovation's been slashed by 50 to 80%. I was called up by the uh, one of the FDA examiners when I was working with prostaglandins and liver disease. And the examiner said, I heard you just filed a patent for prostaglandins and liver disease. Is that true? I said, yes. And he was all excited. He said, this is great because there's nothing for this type of liver disease. 100,000 people die every year. We at the FDA want to do everything we can to help you. But even with that level of support, the company that I worked for did not want to develop the drug. And the reason was when you actually do something new, you have a lot of uncertainties. You don't know the dose you need. You don't know how long you have to treat the patient. You don't know how often you have to treat uh, sometimes you don't even know what parameters you need to measure to really convince the FDA that, yes, the drug works. And the thing is, if you guess wrong on any of these and you do these uh, human studies, which take years to do, and you don't get the statistical significance that the FDA requires because you didn't guess right, <laughs> you have to do the study over. And for these drugs, it was apparent that if we had to do the studies over, 
they would go generic the first day they were on the market and we'd never you know, recover our development costs. So the company decided not to develop them. And that's what's happening to a lot of new drugs, especially ones that are unique, because it's so much harder to get those approved. So it's really a sad situation. So we lose lives because we don't have, we, we have a longer development timeline. We have loss of innovation because we have such high requirements that companies are afraid, even when they have something really new, to go ahead. And then also the FDA regulates the kind of information that can come out. For example, we knew in the early 1980s that aspirin could help heart attack victims. But um, I'm sorry, we knew that in the 60s, actually. Um, Bayer was trying to put something out, you know, a little calendar pack so you could take the right amount of aspirin every day. And the FDA explained to them under the new amendments all the studies they'd have to do. And they said, I don't think so. <laughs> this drug's off patent. You know, we won't recover our development costs. So it wasn't until the 1980s that the American people really found out about how well aspirin works to help heart disease. So I calculate about 1.7 million Americans die just from lack of knowledge about this one new use for an old drug. And of course, that's just one. There's probably many. So you're saying Bayer had this information, uh, wanted to use it as part of their marketing. Uh, obviously, if you have something that can help people with heart disease, which kills millions of people, you want to make that part of your marketing campaign. You want people to be aware of that and how they can use it. But because of the FDA regulations, they weren't even be able, able to make that information publicly available for another two plus decades. Yes, that's correct. Uh huh. That's wow, correct. That's just incredible. Yes. And, and the same is happening with nutrients. For example... Uh, folic acid, a B vitamin, can prevent severe birth defects in the unborn. And but you have to, the women have to take it the first month or two of pregnancy. So the folic acid manufacturers knew this in the early 1980s, and they wanted to tell the American public about it. But the FDA said they'd shut them down if they did so. Then in, in the early 1990s, the Center for Disease Control, another government organization, uh, started recommending that women of childbearing age take folic acid to prevent these birth defects because they're almost 100% preventable uh, if you take folic acid. But the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers if they even referred to the Center for Disease Control's recommendation, <laughs> they would shut them down. So it wasn't until the mid or the mid nineties that you know most American women found out about this folic acid. So in other words, the amendments, which were supposed to prevent thalidomide-like birth defects, actually created an American thalidomide right here in the United States by limiting the information that people could get about folic acid, a B vitamin, to help prevent really horrid birth defects. So in other words, <laughs> the, the amendments did just the opposite of what they were intended to do. I mean, it seems that not only is the FDA involved in regulating the specifics of uh, drug manufacturing and testing and that sort of thing, uh, but they seem to also be regulating speech and preventing uh, what would otherwise be no known as free speech, uh, the, the dissemination of, of very, very valuable information to the public. Yes. What, what the FDA claims is that commercial speech is not protected by the First Amendment. And they've gotten away with it. The courts have agreed with them. And this is part of the problem. Even if the amendments were um, repealed, there have been a lot of court decisions that have 
basically put the amendments into case law. So the only real way to get rid of the amendments or the impact of the amendments is probably to take away the approval power of the FDA. In other words, manufacturers should be able to market their drugs whenever they feel like they've shown they were safe and effective. And of course, they have a lot of incentive to do that because if the drugs aren't and they get sued, it ends up costing them much more than in liability suits and in damages than the drug would ever make. This is true for Vioxx, for example. It was, you know, the cost to the company far out, far outweighed and exceeded what they made on Vioxx. And of course, Vioxx is the most dangerous drug that was ever approved in the United States, and it was approved after the amendments. And it was probably approved because of the amendments, because the amendments created a lot of distortions in the market, as you might imagine. And so there were some legislative band-aids that were put on the amendments in order to, quote, fix this. (laughs) And one of these was having the drug companies pay user fees to the FDA. And over the years, these user fees have grown so much that about half of the salaries of the people at the FDA who approve drugs are paid for by these user fees. So now there is a a conflict of interest with the FDA. So if they don't approve drugs, then what they're doing is destroying the basis for their own salaries. (laughs) So, you know, this is a real problem. And it's been pointed out by a number of researchers as well. My name is Dale Kearns, and I'm running for United States Senate in Pennsylvania as a libertarian. I'm a concerned citizen who has had enough. I work as a project manager for an electrical contractor in southeastern Pennsylvania. There I manage large commercial and industrial projects. I'm a husband and a father of two energetic little girls. I'm running to advocate for a society where my girls have more liberty, not less. Will you support our campaign? Unlike my competitors, I'm not a career politician. I don't have millionaire and billionaire donors. I'm running for Senate in Pennsylvania because I want to take the message to Washington that we want government out of our lives. Will you let me be your voice? Let me be the voice that says we will not walk quietly down the road to serfdom. The voice that says we need free market solutions. The voice that says we need to end the failed war on drugs. The voice who will fight for the forgotten man, nonviolent offenders wasting away in prison, and addicts who are afraid to speak up and seek the help they need. We are seeking members for our campaign team. I encourage you to apply. We need donations to help us spread the message of liberty across the state. We can go on hoping for liberty to happen, or we can fight together. I hope you choose the latter and join me today. Find out more at DaleKearns.com. Paid for by Dale Kearns for Office. I know one thing that people will bring up when they hear about your approach uh, against these regulations, against the FDA, they'll ask, well, Mary, how on earth would private companies be held accountable without these regulations if a company, say, makes a thalidomide-type drug that ends up harming people and causing birth defects or maybe wasn't tested properly, wasn't tested enough and is released to the public and causes damage, causes harm to people? So how, in the absence of the FDA, in the absence of regulations, how can a free market actually help? hold private companies accountable and encourage them to do the proper testing on their end, whatever they deem that to be, or whatever, I guess, whatever the market maybe deems it to be, how would that actually play out without the FDA? Well, probably the best way is to have certifying organizations. There actually are consumer organizations right now that have done a fairly good job in specific areas. For example, the Abigail Alliance 
has been looking at cancer drugs and what it has done. I think there's 40 drugs now that they have indicated uh, that actually work and should have been approved early, but the FDA dragged its feet. And it was, you know, a couple of years, I think on average, that they didn't approve these drugs. So as consumer organizations, if consumer organizations can tell when a drug is effective, years before the FDA approves it, obviously it has the ability to evaluate such drugs. And on the flip side, there's a group uh, that works on pointing out which are bad drugs. And that, that group has indicated that about half the drugs that have been withdrawn after they reached the market, should have been withdrawn years earlier, and they were lobbying for that. And that that's public citizen, which, you know, I don't agree with all their stuff, but in that they do very well. They show which drugs are bad. So we know that even consumers organizations are able to get enough information to predict which drugs are going to work well and which ones aren't. And and this idea of certification is not new. We actually have certification for our electrical appliances, where, again, if you don't have a good appliance, you could electrocute yourself. So it's very important. The UL symbol that you see on your electrical appliances is a certified certification. So what happens is in the United States, items without the UL certification can be marketed. So if you needed a specialty electrical appliance of some sort, you could buy it. But most places want to have this UL certification on the electrical appliances that they sell just to make sure that they're safe and they don't have to worry about liability. And believe it or not, most most companies do not actually want to electrocute their customers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's bad for business. And that's the same for drug companies. They suffer if they put something on the market. And and they suffered more. Uh, pre-amendment because reputation was very, very important. Doctors would hesitate to prescribe drugs from companies that, you know, didn't have a very good record in terms of safety. So it was very, very important to com- for companies to make sure their products always were safe because otherwise physicians wouldn't prescribe them. So today, Physicians don't even worry about brand names. They figure if the FDA approved it, it's okay. But as I show in in Death by Regulation, that's not true. The FDA has approved a lot of questionable drugs, and Vioxx really was the most dangerous drug that's ever been approved in the United States. And it's it was it was pretty serious by the FDA's own estimates. You know, there's been something like. 16,000 deaths from heart attack and probably twice that much had a heart attack as died from it. So, you know, that was a pretty terrible drug that was put out. And it was put out over objections of some of the FDA examiners. And uh, there's been some exposés on that, as I talk about in the book. And uh, basically, the FDA examiner, David Graham, who objected, was told that the drug companies were the client. And that's because, again, of these user fees, uh, which was a legislative band-aid put in place because of the amendments. So we've we've made the situation worse every time we've added one of these band-aids. And I go through them in the book. 
Well, that, that goes completely against what the, uh, the concept of the FDA is supposed to be. If anything, the client is supposed to be the citizen, the consumer that is being, you know, supposedly protected by these regulations. But the way this has sort of developed over the years, like they even admitted there that the drug company is the client. And that is, that is really a, a dangerous situation. So who, who actually does end up benefiting, I guess, from these regulations? Obviously, uh, these wouldn't remain in place if there weren't those benefiting. So is it some of the, the larger drunk companies that are able to to get their patents in early enough i mean who who's who's benefit obviously we mentioned the salaries as well and, and a lot of people that, that work at the fda they continue to benefit but who who seems to benefit the most from the existence of these regulations well there's a belief that people benefit and they think they do but ultimately they don't and i'll explain that in a minute so for example when these amendments were passed they basically drove all the small firms out of business And of course, the big firms remain. So in a sense, you could say the big firms profit. And of course, the regulators profit too, because they've been able to hire many more regulators now that they have all these user fees. But really, it's an illusion. And the reason it's an illusion is that before we are regulators, before we are drug company executives, before we are doctors or patients, you know, we are human beings And we've all had uh, five to 10 years shaved off our life because of these amendments. So if you're making lots of profit because you're a big drug company and you think this is the way to go, well, is it worth, you know, five to 10 years of your life and that of your loved ones? Because that's the price, the real price that's being paid here. I think most people, if they understood this, would say, oh, no, that's not that's not working. <laughs> that That's not what I want. So I think it's an illusion that uh, some people uh, profit. They Yes, they do profit monetarily, but they lose years of their lives. So I think if this was understood I think we would see a very different attitude towards the amendments and the FDA in general. Mary, I know you've been involved with this issue and with the the medical industry for many, many years now, but I imagine even someone like you with all that knowledge may have run into some information along the way researching this book that was shocking even to yourself. So is there anything in in the creation of this book and the writing of this book that, that you found out that shocked even you, even you with all this knowledge that you have? Yes. Well, you know, partly I was motivated to write this book because I was in the pharmaceutical industry during the time the amendments were really ramped up the FDA and creating issues with the drug companies. And I could see this because, of course, I was working in the industry. But when I started writing this book, I got even a bigger shock. I had no idea that the regulations were as deadly as they are. And really, the estimates in my book are conservative. So if you recognize that, you can really see why I have the subtitle of my book, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It, because that's exactly what happened. In the early 60s, we were poised on on really having a golden age of health, you know, not just through pharmaceuticals, but through nutrition. You know, when I was working in the industry, our rats were so healthy because all their their food and nutrition had been titrated to such an extent, they were super healthy. So the way we had to create disease models was we took away a vitamin or two, or we 
uh, changed the nutrient mix so that they, you know, were kind of overwhelmed with sugar or fat. Kind of like everyday Americans are. Exactly. So as researchers, we got, okay, optimal nutrition is super important uh, if you want to stay healthy. So, you know, we all paid attention to our diets and things and our our medical doctor counterparts uh, didn't always get that message. And so they smoked, they drank, (laughs) they were a little heavier than they should have been. They didn't always exercise, whereas all the researchers are jogging into work and things like this. <laughs> right. So so it's really important, I think, to understand that the prevention aspect is even probably overwhelms the huge numbers that I found for the drug industry. And so that, I, again, I couldn't really get a good calculation on that, although I do put some examples in the book. But I think that's even even greater. So we really could have been quite healthy at this point in time. But instead, things are getting worse. Well, Mary, one more thing I wanted to ask you about the book, actually. Uh, the foreword of the book uh, was written by uh, an obscure Texas doctor that some of our listeners may be familiar with, a guy by the name of Ron Paul. So how did uh, that come about? How, uh, how long have you known Dr. Paul? How did he, you get him involved with uh, wanting to write the foreword of this book for you? Well, I've known him since 1988 when he was the Libertarian Party presidential nominee. And after that, I, you know, supported some of his congressional runs. And he's been a big supporter of mine. He actually suggested that uh, I be the FDA commissioner one year when things were up in the air. Oh, wow. Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I, I mean, and of course he, he's so busy. I always appreciate it when he's willing to write something for me and he was willing to do the forward for the book. And I, uh, obviously that's just, that's just wonderful because he actually did propose legislation to protect our access to nutritional supplements. um, And, you know, he was always a big believer in prevention. So I thought he was an excellent person to write the foreword. And of course, Jonathan Wright, another doctor who's very well known in the nutritional field, he's he's really been a pioneer in, in many things. Uh, he also was willing to write the preface. So I, I, I really, and I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, it's really, again, important to think in terms of prevention and nutrition when you're thinking about your health. Now, drugs are important too if you can't make the nutrition and prevention work if you have genetic defects. I mean, we just don't know enough. So we're going to get sick. And that's when, that's when the drugs can often be helpful. And I am a big believer in using the best of everything. <laughs> I guess the message I guess I would like to leave your listeners with is that no matter who we are, you know, we are all losing years of our lives because of these amendments. Well, Mary, I'd certainly encourage people to check out your book, Death by Regulation. You were kind enough to send me an advanced copy, and and uh, it's really an excellent work on the on this topic. Uh, I know you did have some possible some special offers to offer to our listeners uh, about uh, finding the book and uh, pre-ordering the book. So why don't you uh, run through all the ways they can get that stuff right now? Okay. Well, you know the book is going to be released on April 10th, and we're taking special orders, pre-orders until April 9th. And when you pre-order at deathbyregulation.us, you also get $60 worth of free bonuses. And it includes Jonathan Wright's newsletter, which we just talked about him, um, some free offers on that. Uh, It includes a free copy, a digital copy of the latest edition of Healing Our World. It includes a $10 uh, gift certificate for Life Extension, which is a supplement company that also has great information on 
how to extend your life with uh, nutritionals, prevention, drugs, whatever. And, uh, and we also have a coupon for free to choose medicine that the Heartland Institute put out. And the wonderful thing about that is it's also a how to reform the FDA book. It's a little more conservative than mine, and it's planned, therefore, because it's a little more conservative, probably has a good chance of passing, and the things in my book hopefully will support that. So that's an exciting thing to get. And then Jonathan Gullible, The Adventures of Jonathan Gullible, A Free Market Odyssey by Ken Schoolin. You have a free book coming from that with illustrations. And this book has been translated into 50 different countries, different languages, and is now in the process of having plays and other types of media made around it. So it's very exciting. It's all very exciting. Well, that is just a boatload of stuff. So if you guys are listening to this interview and are even remotely interested in, in reading more about this topic, I can't recommend enough heading to uh, deathbyregulation.us, I believe you said, and yes. pre-ordering this book. You've got about a week or so from uh, the time this airs to to get that pre-order in, to get all that free stuff. So get on it, Lions. Do this thing. Mary Ruart, thank you so much for joining me once again. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, really, I think this is a, an incredibly important topic. Obviously, uh, as you discussed in the book, this is a life for death matter and uh you know what i want to i want those five years back i don't know if i can get them back it's they might be gone already but uh more importantly i hope that future generations my children my grandchildren can at least be freed of some of these shackles and uh, hopefully uh future generations if we can spread this information enough um things can change to the point that people can live longer better and uh, more fulfilling lives that's right. And one of the advantages of pre-ordering is that we'll put all the orders in Amazon on April 10th and hopefully shoot it up to the top of the Amazon bestseller list. That gives us the best chance of spreading the word and getting some reforms and getting those five years back. All right. Well, Mary, I, I know I don't, I don't need to tell you to do this, but I encourage you to continue to keep up the great work and to keep on roaring. <laughs> thank you, Mark. And thank you for having me. And good day to all your listeners. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Miss Mary Ruard. Be sure to check out her book, Death by Regulation, a very important topic, a very important subject, and there's really nobody who knows more about this from her personal experience and all the research that she's done over the years than Miss Mary Ruart. And we actually recorded a little bit of a bonus segment for our Lions of Liberty Pride members after the show where uh, Mary and I discussed how to communicate the ideas of liberty to the left, which is where she came from, as we kind of touched on in the beginning of the show. So look out for that in your feed for Pride members. If not, you can hop on board for as little as $5 a month. How nice is that? You can get access to that as well as all of the other exclusive audio we've done, our Conspiracy Corner series, which is very popular, our pretty much weekly Degenerate Gamblers, which is really just degenerate uh, tales of our past history as friends and uh, shenanigans from college and that kind of thing. So people really tend to like that stuff. We have so much extra content. Of course, we've done uh, extra segments with the guys like Dave Smith, Tom Woods, Scott Horton, Julie Borowski, all the great guests that we've had on the show uh, over the past year plus or so that we've had the pride going on. So so just an easy way to support the show. You guys are sending us to Porkfest. We are so excited about that. Uh, we're going to do the, uh, I'm very frightened about this, the whiskey challenge uh, between uh, groups of three of the Lions of Liberty here. So uh, that's going to be uh, very interesting to say the least. It may, uh, may be the downfall of fall of our careers or the launch of it. I really don't know which one. Uh, hoping to meet many, many more of you there. Until next time, folks, do not forget to tune in. This Wednesday, once again, you will have an edition 
of Electric Liberty Land, even while Brian is traveling away in the land of the rising sun. Also, look out in your feed. Like I said, I'll try to put some of that audio out uh, from the Liberty Behind the Lines event as well. And of course, this coming Friday, John Odermatt hits you hard with another tale of the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. So be sure to tune in, folks. It's been a blast. I got to go back to bed. I am exhausted from Liberty Behind the Lines. Until next time, kitty cats. Live long! And live free.